Thanks for listening to The World We Deserve, the officially unofficial podcast for HBO's True Detective Anthology, brought to you by Bald Move. This podcast covers Season 2, Episode 1, titled The Western Book of the Dead. The war was lost, the treaty signed, I was not caught across the line, I was not caught, though many tried, I live among you, well disguised. True Detective Season 2 introduces us to four new main characters. Frank Simeon, lifelong criminal trying to go legit by landing a government railway contract. The city manager, Casper, was supposed to attend a presentation to close the deal, but he turns up dead on the side of the highway. Ray Valcoro, an unstable, alcoholic, Vinci PD detective who is also working for Frank. His wife was raped, and now he's fighting for custody of a son who may not be his own. Antigone Bezaridis a Ventura County detective who was on a misguided mission to save her sister from herself. And Paul Woodrew, a highway patrol officer with an unknown past which has left him scarred, both physically and mentally. He's falsely accused of soliciting a blowjob from a woman he pulls over and is suspended, which indirectly leads to him finding Casper's body. My initial reaction was kind of rough. You know, I had read a lot of these kind of lukewarm reviews and... um you know, we I got hit with the intro song, which is one of the uh-huh. best things about season one, and just the low key nature of the uh, the, the song. The visual elements are still striking, but just yeah. you know, I feel like last year I like the kind of sand and waves feel that they had in the mm-hmm. textures in mm-hmm. the intro. That's really good for the setting, right? But compared to last season, it just was not as interesting. It doesn't like I yeah. never. I don't like that song. Yeah, I think that's the whole problem because someone yeah. took and, and read it. There were there's two different cuts where they took the 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 current title sequence and they overlaid it with the um the song from the trailer. And then okay. they also overlaid it with the song This Is My Least Favorite Life from the end of the episode. Yeah. And they both worked better, honestly. Okay. <laughs> now I I, will I don't s- know why they changed it from the trailer because I thought the trailer song is so good. I thought it was too. And but I gotta say that when I actually listen to the lyrics after seeing the episode, I'm wondering if this isn't going to be seen um, after the fact as a pretty tight fit. Yeah, I can imagine. You know, there's got to be a reason they chose it. And maybe you like the song. Maybe you like the lyrics, whatever. But I also think that the less exotic feel of that song carried through throughout the whole episode. Like L.A. Yeah. is something that we are all familiar with and like the you know even sure. the weird excesses of like the the sex mansion sex toy mansion mm-hmm. didn't feel particularly out of place in a way that the swamps of Louisiana with the devil traps and that occult stuff was instantly Nothing like except it was not yeah. accessible but in a very fun mysterious way where this is Okay, gangster, he owns a casino. Uh-huh. He's trying to do a one last project to go legit. I've seen this story a hundred times. Uh, a th- you know, not just one dysfunctional drunk cop. We've got three. Uh-huh. One of them, it's, it was on the surface less interesting. Yeah, I think you hit it on the head when you said it's less exotic, you know? Yeah. It's something that we've seen a thousand times in fiction. It's not particularly interesting in itself. It's got to be the way that it's told. It's got to be the way it all comes together. And that's why, like, this first episode doesn't really hit me, because it's straightforward. I mean, for all people want to say about, oh, this is such a confusing way to set up the thing. No, no. It's very straightforward tales, uh, introductions to these characters. Sure. Uh, Now, I will say that 
on second and third watches, I started liking it better. And then I got online and I started seeing what people were saying about uh, some of the, you know, cultural and the psychosphere stuff, if we, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Uh, and I'm like, wow, this episode was <laughs> more, far more dense. Like, it was less obvious about but, it. But yeah, none of it is on the surface, right? You don't have the symbols on people's backs. No. You don't have the horns and the no. thorns. and Which I got to believe means that a lot of the stuff, like in the first season, could potentially not go anywhere or be kind of like what we always talk of Mad Men, where you don't need to know what book Don Draper is reading by the poolside in California. Mm-hmm. But if you do, it's cool and you'll, you'll engage with the material on a deeper basis. So, yeah, you know, and, and I'm going to, you know, starting off the psychosphere segment, I, I want to do a little defense of why it's still valid to <laughs> huff the psychosphere, even though yeah. acknowledging everything we said about it from, from the wrap up cast of, of last season. So I don't know. What did you think? What was your because because there's the other thing is I kept in mind like halfway through the episode is like maybe this is what Jim felt the first in three the first episodes where I just I could not understand how you could not engage with the material. I went to the subreddit and to and and started reading and there's so many people gushing and I'm like mm-hmm. I don't I'm not feeling the same experience. So I started thinking like well maybe that's yeah. okay if this is a book you're not supposed to maybe be blown away in the first chapter. Maybe it has to be a slower burn and it maybe it's going to be a, yeah. a de- or it's going to be an inversion of last season where like, you know, the first half arguably was more interesting and better than the resolution. Interesting. Okay. Um, or at least see, I don't have that same impression of the first season, right? Like, yeah, the, the first half of that season was not what did it for me. Well, that's um, the thing. Cause when I hear like Dan Feinberg and Alan, Alan Sevenwell talking about that, I feel like that they maybe be they're talking out of their memories. That's the thing. Like, it's hard for me to distinguish my second viewing from my first on season one. Um, but I, I know I had a very like nonplussed reaction towards season one. In yeah. The first few episodes. And that's exactly how I feel this time too. It's like, I this is this is even like I guess a notch below that where I'm saying mm-hmm. like I all of this is so straightforward and such standard cop stuff mm-hmm. that it's less interesting than you know spiral tattoos and yeah and the the possible mix up in the occult here and now in the psychosphere we're going to get into that stuff and it get, becomes way more interesting yeah but on the surface of it just taken as a show without the meta commentary stuff yeah I was not as engaged by this episode as i was by the first season the other thing i will say is that it's kind of another inversion from the first season which you know the first season hits us with the very intriguing murder mystery and the characters Mm -hmm. of martin of marty and rust are mysteries that we will uncover throughout the weeks where i felt like this the murder was kind of like the b plot that we all didn't even know was a real murder at least the yeah. main characters did till the very end of this episode whereas the characters all four of the major characters are introduced <laughs> in a much more complex and you know detailed maybe not even complex because i don't know there's a lot of complexity with uh with Colin Farrell's character he's more got more mysterious yeah of, I, mean, I mean that's there's more you know, factual mysteries around there's him. a lot going on in his head like you can tell that he is troubled and he might not understand why and right. he's pushing these things off on other people for reasons he doesn't understand. Right. But I think we kind of do as an audience, right? But but his extreme behavior is stuff that like if if he if we compare him to Marty, Marty didn't express that stuff no. until like 
episode three. three. Yeah, or episode three. So this he got in there. Now I will say that I think Paul is a really interesting character and very mysterious. Paul, which one is Paul? Uh, he's the motorcycle cop. Oh, Taylor Kitsch. Yeah, yeah. So he's the easily the most sympathetic of the three character, the four characters. But right? that might be because we don't know his big exactly. Dark secret. Yeah, what is the Black Mountain thing, which we we'll talk about in a second. But 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 we know a lot more about a lot more characters than we did in the first episode of You're absolutely of True right. Detective. But we know less about the actual murder and and the reasons behind it. Uh, I wouldn't say that. That's possible because I, mean, I, I keep on in the first episode of True Detective, you know nothing about that murder. Yeah, but other than there's some weird shit going it's on. It's also here. true, like uh, Nick Pizzolatto said, that ninety percent of the first season's mystery is revealed in the first episode. And in retrospect, I think that's mostly true. Uh, How so? I mean, it's really just finding a body and saying this is her name. Yeah, but Isn't you it? had the Marie Fontenot was uncovered. You had the Spaghetti Face Monster Man. You had the t- references to the Tuttle's involvement to try to squash the investigation. Like, so I think that stuff is in this That's episode. what I'm saying. And when we get to the psychosphere, that will all become apparent. Right. Uh, so I, I guess maybe it's just more blatant in season one. Well, plus the other thing is I'm going to say it. Uh I what really kicked me in the balls and and grabbed me and demanded my attention was Matthew McConaughey spouting his nonsense. Yeah, yeah. That connected with me in a way that nothing on, on this episode is connected. Well, there's none of that in this episode, really. I mean, you it, have to look behind the scenes to find it. Yeah, the Annie's dad at the Polynesian <laughs> Institute uh, of Pineapples or whatever. It, he goes a little bit of light rust, but he's not nearly the math. You know, he's not Matthew no, McConaughey. No. No, and and in the middle of the reconnaissance. So yeah, Yeah. I I don't think that's the fault of this season. It's just you don't have these two guys who are best friends and who have really got behind the character and the director and the writer and have decided to do the best work of their lives. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I I didn't feel connected to any of the characters. Uh, Taylor Kitsch's character, Paul, you said, yeah, is the one that I feel more most sympathetic toward. The rest of them are shitbags. Vince Vaughn's character is surprisingly one of the more likable like performances in in the series so far. But there again, he's playing like uh, a, we a Michael Corleone type without yeah, knowing. We don't the see sin. the bad stuff that he's done yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing. Like he's we the know baby face trying... Michael before he settles all the family yep. business. Yep. Before he kills the chief of police and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um. So I know there's more behind the scenes there, but I know there's more behind the scenes on Taylor Kitsch and Paul. Um. It's it's a matter of seeing that. Like I think the ugliest character, obviously, that we've seen so far is Colin Farrell's Ray uh, Velcro, Ray Velcora. <laughs> yeah, uh, Velcro. That was a, a joke because every single one of my references to his name was autocorrected to Velcro yeah. <laughs> in my notes, and I wasn't even noticing it because I don't, <laughs> you know, I'm not paying attention to that when I'm taking notes at uh-huh. like 120 words a minute. But sure. yeah, I thought that was pretty funny. So like it. It was tough for me also to get into the dialogue of this show. I felt like a lot of it was. It's the I mean, same I've used kind this of term so many times up his own ass. Like mm. Nick Pizzolatto likes to write this stuff that just no one would ever say. No one would ever say this stuff. But it sounds outside of Deadwood or Firefly. But here's the difference. I think it's the same shit, but it sounded natural coming out of a robo tripping. Okay. 
uh, Matthew McConaughey. He had a and way of you also it, yeah. had Woody Harrelson there to be like, you're so full of shit, shut the fuck up. Nobody Where, was encouraging it. Nobody, when Vince Vaughn is like, behold, what once was a man. I'm like, <laughs> seriously, you're putting on cufflinks and this uh, is the shit you're coming out? Like, what? Putting on cufflinks is emasculating? What, what the hell is going on here? There was a lot yeah. of that weird dialogue that there was no there you know it's kind of like one of the problems of the prequels of star wars is there's no han solo to be like whatever whatever with your yeah. ooby dooby nonsense yeah everybody's kind of in on it there was no woody harrelson to kind of be the everyman that says yeah. okay what you know whatever and then there were some weird things like it just it felt strange to me that like when vince vaughn meets osip or osip however mm-hmm. you say it uh for the first time he doesn't say anything like, he gets kissed on the cheek, and then he just stands there like a fucking dummy until the guy walks away. But that's... If his wife doesn't step in and say something, what, what is he doing here at this place? Does he have a purpose? Does he, Is he there for a reason to meet this guy and talk with this guy and convince him to finalize this deal or not? Well, I mean, yeah, but that's – I'm fine with that because we don't quite know the relationship um, between those two men. And, in fact, there's some hints that it could be – Have you ever met someone <laughs> – like, gone to a party, met someone, and not said a word to them while they were speaking directly to you. I don't know if it's like... That's such an unnatural thing to do. I, mean, I, it, it I get so it. It felt so stilted and weird. But I don't know. Like, if I met my mom at a party, that's exactly what would happen. And there's a perfectly logical re- explanation for that interaction that you as an observer would be like, that's fucking weird. So I'm content to allow because all right, all right, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there must be, some, like, but then later on, like for example, Frank's last name is Se- Semyon, uh huh, or I don't know how so you Simeon. pronounce it. Semyon. I, I mean, it, it sounds like, you know like the term for the ape. Someone, right? but also someone said that that's a Russian name, and okay. Osip is obviously a Russian guy. Yeah. So there could be some kind of like history between these two that would make that scene make sense. There is definitely a history. They said that they met in Paris and they talked. Well, yeah, but that's um, like even that's like even more recent than I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah. Like maybe this guy grew up with a, the Russian mob, or I, I don't, okay. I don't know. But I'm saying like I'm content to let that kind of stuff pass until I, I see what what's actually underneath these characters' fingernails. I'm just saying it it lent a feeling of you know otherworldly kind of it, it just it felt like more of a contrived situation than well, i wanted it to yeah but on the other hand this is a much more ambitious season because the first season was very limited in scope it's 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 oh, yeah. rust and marty in a ring you know struggling with each other's personalities and flaws and philosophies yeah with the murder story to kind of tie it all together this is already so much more complex than that it seems you've, like it, yeah. You've got, you know, four characters that all have, like, all these various entanglements and family issues and self-confidence issues and substance abuse issues and deep... I mean, it's, uh, it, it's kind of remarkable that they were able to get this all out in a single hour, honestly. And I feel like this is going to be a very long podcast in proportion to the others that we've done for that very reason. It's just the first <laughs> hour felt dense. Um, and it wasn't it as does. interesting and immediately accessible for me, Yeah, but I think even three episodes is, you know, I, I, I read a lot of critics that were later, like just completely blowing the true detective horn the, their reviews of the first three episodes were kind of lukewarm or, eh, I'm not sure how interested, I'm not sure if I can put up with a full season of this and we I'm know how that him. turned out. I mean, so. I'm with them so far. Like from what I've seen, I'm, 
it's kind of it's just okay. Okay. And it's, you know, there's more under the surface that we'll talk about, but but again, you were that way throughout the first three episodes last season too. Definitely. Yeah. So uh, it's the outlier. And that's is why me. <laughs> that, that's why I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. I'm not sure. saying this show is shit. I don't want to watch it. All that stuff. But yeah, yeah, we'll see how it goes in the next few episodes. And the other thing that gives me hope that this season is going to be more than what we're assuming from the reviews and the trailers is that by my count. Every single scene from the season trailer comes from this one episode. Mm, yeah, yeah. Which means a lot of things that I was said about being worried that, like, man, I just don't see a lot of the same weird kind of shit and interesting shit. Well, if this all came from one episode, then there's seven more to 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 really make this mystery weird. And oh, yeah. uh, that that gives me hope that this can evolve into something as interesting and as as gripping as what we got with season one. Do you want to talk a little bit about the actual plot of the thing? Sure. Like kind of set it up for people because... A lot of people were saying it was tough to follow. Uh, I don't know about that. It I, is No, people were saying that. I disagree, but they were saying that. <laughs> I will say that there's a lot of things that you will miss on first glance. Like yeah. Paul, the motorcycle cop, when he's called mm-hmm. in on the carpet for the blow the, the blow jay incident. I think we're meant to understand that that was less about the blow job and that was a convenient excuse for his superiors to get him off the beat. Because they were already yeah. looking at this, poli- you know, citywide corruption issue, and uh, his his background as a mercenary is somehow embarrassing. Although I don't, that's another thing I don't understand. But to show clearly, you know, the people involved, you know, the, the, his commanding officer and him understand that that's an issue, and that he needs to take a little bit of a vacation until this heat yeah. goes by. That's yeah. something that I think is very puzzling, in, in, unless you you get that. And there's a couple other things, like the flashes of the little soil sample flags and the contaminated ground at the beginning. Like, you know, there's a lot of people I probably like get to the end of the hour. Thematic. Well, but I mean, I think that's the stuff that helped this stuff hang together. Okay. And the fact that, you know, they do a lot of weird things where the first time you're introduced to Casper, they got this weekend at Bernie's deal situation where he just kind of looks like he's. Oh, I like that. I actually like the way that they introduced this Casper. Like you're not even character. sure that he's dead. Yes, exactly. He might be a boss of some kind. Yeah, like, this guy might be going to you know Vince Vaughn's meeting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he might be a, a bad guy or a tough. You don't even know that he's Casper. But then when at you show point. up, he's dead, and and, yeah. and you're not even maybe sure that that's supposed to be Casper unless you were looking uh-huh. at the wall in his office uh, in the city council where it shows that he is the city manager. Unless you remembered that picture and then remembered his face until the very end of the episode, and they're saying, "Well, this is you know he's a," I'm yeah, just and saying, they whip open his wallet, and you've and got the, like ten names you got to keep track of. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's I can see there, and I think a lot of people got conf- I saw people got confused with Annie's sister being the same girl as the missing, and I can see how if you're just watching this on the first time that that would all be confusing. Hmm. I didn't have yeah, a problem with so. some of that stuff, but I had problems I with either. other stuff. That would let, allow me to think that, yes, if you just watch this once and like, what the fuck, that's a valid reaction to have. Yeah, I think the only thing I really didn't get the first time through was that Black Mountain stuff. 
I mean, you can uh, and say we're not supposed to, yeah. right? I mean, you, we're we, not supposed to know what's happening with that. We, you can say the same thing about um, Inception, right? Oh yeah, it's a movie yeah. that seems very complicated on first glance, and then you look at it, and it's like, no, it's pretty simple. Or at least that's my interpretation of it. I kind of yeah. think maybe this episode's the same way. It seems more complicated than it really is, and everything's a lot more on the surface. You just have to. You almost have to watch it twice to get the names and the situations that then you can start making connections to in the second pass through. But that's not true of most of these storylines, I feel. Like Okay, that's probably the, true. The sure. Vince Vaughn stuff, very straightforward. Very he's a former criminal boss. He's looking to go legit with this railroad deal. More legit than owning casinos, which that seems yeah, like yeah. that's I thought that was going to be the main kind of through line of this season, that he's trying to get money together to go legit through a gambling organization, uh-huh. a casino. But he's already got the casinos. Now he's he wanting does. to get, like, uber rich. Like, yeah. old old California wealthy family. He's wanting to get sure. Kennedy rich. He, he wants to build a legacy. Um, yeah. That's super straightforward. I thought the Velcoro stuff was super straightforward. Mm-hmm. Uh, Although you there, know, there are fine details you can jump in and like start to nitpick and root around in the backstory. But like yeah. the general gist of his story is very simple. Um, event in his past where his wife was raped. They had a kid who I got to believe he is. He doesn't think is his own. Um, you but, know, despite what he says. That's the thing. He can't possibly think that this kid is his. Um, and, you know, he's having a lot of trouble dealing with both he's of those in denial events. he's yes. in denial and i it's going to be interesting when he i'm assuming he's going to be faced with that realization and have to deal with it yeah and he's mixed up obviously with um simeon who you know gave him the information on the guy who uh, raped his wife and i don't know what he did with that information mm. we see him storming off potentially to go get this guy yeah um that's super straightforward and also did did frank provide him with the correct information sure yeah first question that came to my mind there's no way that's the real guy yeah there's no fucking way is he using a cop's anger and rage to of course he is he's a mob boss to deal with a rival gangster and also maybe now get a dirty cop on his payroll absolutely that that's my guess anyway and and then i mean and then there's rachel mcadams character uh how do you pronounce her full name it's annie for short but Oh, Antigone. Antigone. Uh, yeah, her last name is Bezarides or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, her her story seems fairly straightforward too. You know, she's well, that's the other thing that like got this estranged father because he basically let her mother commit suicide. Yeah, and her sister, you know, took that hard, got into drugs, and is now clean, and she can't deal with the sex stuff she's doing. It's it's all very straightforward there too, right? Well, but there's a lot below the surface there, and if you want, I mean, I'm not. Gonna, I think on all of these, yeah. I'm not. I'm not going to get into this in a psychosphere segment, but you can have a lot of fun uh, researching Ginsburg as it relates yeah, to yeah, like yeah. the beat poets of yesteryear, and uh, also there's a interesting literary connection to that Bezer Bezer Bezerides or. Yeah, I, I don't know how to pronounce her last name. Annie's last name. That's yeah. also a connection uh-huh. to some literary allusions that. You know that sure. I, I, you got to draw the line between psychosphere and just nods. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. You know that he's making, and mm-hmm. that's where I've kind of made it. But there's certainly some stuff there. But my point is, the the plot itself is very easy to follow so far. Yeah, I, I don't. I didn't have any trouble with it, except for Taylor Kitsch is very enigmatic. Right, we don't know anything of his backstory. We right. know he mentioned something about Black Mountain, which potentially caused him to get. Uh, sidelined here which he hates apparently Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, he's no good in the sidelines 
Um, and you know, he's got some injuries from from previous that cause him uh, we, to be impotent and stuff. And we don't know well, and we don't know if that's a physical damage uh, sure. or psychological damage or what. But I think it's interesting if you assume that he's telling the truth. You have a situation where this Black Mountain stuff was done as a mercenary. Mm-hmm. And now, normally, you know, if, if this is kind of an allusion to, like, the Blackwater stuff, you normally you serve yeah, in the military, yeah. and then you you end your tour, and you get your honorable discharge, you and then you go into the mercenary work until you're done with that. You make a pile of money, and then I like, presumably you retire. I don't know. Or you Maybe. fight the Predator. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, start, you start living out S- Soldier of Fortune magazine. Uh-huh. It's hard to square his timeline with what he says to the girl. If his injuries are war injuries, he said, no, that happened before the army. Mm-hmm. And the Black Mountain stuff happened presumably after the army. So is, you know, we're I mean, Black find... Mountain might not have anything to do with it. Ex- you know? Exactly. Well, no, his I injuries think might not be caused. Black, by Black Mountain, is, Mountain. Conne- is connected to the mercenary stuff uh, per his commanding officer. Okay, I'm talking about his injuries, though. Like injuries may not relate to that, yeah, but I yeah. think that's a natural assumption you make. But if you again, you tell you say that he's telling the truth, and these wounds predated his involvement in the army, which predates his mercenary work. So yeah, yeah, you know, is that was he set on fire in foster care? Motorcycle Did he have a motorcycle accident when he's 18? Yeah. Is he a motorcycle rate? Who the hell knows? I don't know. Yeah, I also think it's interesting that all four of the main characters have some kind of sexual dysfunction, like. Vince Vaughn, Frank's character, okay. is trying to conceive a child with his wife, who he seems to love and respect, uh, mm-hmm. and he can't do it. Uh, Colin, uh, a character, uh, Ray, Ray yeah. he was having trouble conceiving with his wife. His wife got raped. As a result of those experiences and everything else he's done in the meantime, he is completely done with – he seems like he's asexual. Uh, okay. Annie has – abhors her sisters doing cam whoring essentially mm-hmm. um but has some kind of sexual issues herself uh that was disturbing to both her and her boyfriend yeah. although something the, kinky going the way on she there. played that at the end she was almost more bemused by her boyfriend than like upset about it um but still she's got you know intimacy issues there and then you've got of course obviously uh paul taking boner pills to get it up for his sexy as hell girlfriend and the fact that he won't has never spent the night with her yeah. The fact that it's been over a week since they've had sex, mm. um, and they're still presumably in the honeymoon phase of the relationship, there he's I waiting think, for his order from Canada. <laughs> I think I think it's interesting that that all the characters are unified by some sort sort of sexual dysfunction. It's all yeah. different types of sexual dysfunction, mm-hmm. and I think that's significant. Could be. Could be. Especially huh? if you start sure off in forward. the psychosphere and you get into the Oedipus complex of it. All, all right. Yeah. 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 Um, the other super interesting thing I think it is set up in the plot here is this, this murder. Um, and it's, it's obvious, you know, that's, that's what the murder is there for to mm-hmm. intrigue us, to make us say, oh, who is this guy? Why was he murdered? All that stuff. Um, there's some stuff that's not quite psychosphery because it's on the page and it's on the screen. Sure. Um, I want to talk about this catalyst company for a second. Yeah. This is interesting because this guy, um, Casper is dropped off at a section of highway right next to a sign that says uh, this highway adopted by Catalyst Groups. And Catalyst Groups is the company that uh, Vince Vaughn, what is his name? Simeon, mentions to Osip 
when he's talking about, you know, we've got this deal lined up and we've got our backers and it's all set in place. And he says, you know, that the, the catalyst group is the one who set this up. So it it's interesting when you say, okay, look at the way that Casper was set up here. Casper sitting at a bench with his wallet in his fucking lap, ready to go, ready to be identified. Mm-hmm. This has got to be a message of some kind, right? Sure. Well, and that was, oh, there's so many parallels between season one and season two, which I'm not sure is wise by Pizzolatto and company. But yeah, in in a lot the same way that the kill the killing of Dora Lang was very public and intending to yeah. be discovered and sending a message, this does indeed seem like it's, you know, kind of a coincidence that a cop discovers him, but that's not super it doesn't bother me because that eventually. was designed to be discovered if it's either yes. you know someone uh-huh. passing that on their way to work in the morning or gotta stop and take a piss yeah, it's, oh, somebody's gonna do why not have it be the cop so sure. but okay. yeah no there that is intention a message now it makes me wonder what the purpose of that message is the thing when you shared that theory with me the first thing i thought of is like oh it's someone that's unhappy with the corruption ah okay and like is, this is author who, off. who they yeah who they put the kibosh on yeah yeah like this this newspaper it's someone uh-huh. some common man who's has you know if you can't fi- if you can't fight corruption in government legitimately you have to eventually go to extracurricular means okay. to do it or you're yeah. not going to get anywhere and i also think that it ties into the fact i don't really like the new theme song but you know leonard cohen recorded it back in 2014 and he had an interview he's 80 years old at the time of this and he said that this was a reaction to the the helplessness of the anonymity of war victims and it's huh. the voice of an unrepresented majority of people who are frustrated and not being heard okay interesting and that's like that's why i started when he shared a theory it's like ah okay so maybe i'm gonna come around this song because if that's an angry anthem about underrepresented underheard people that are being pawns of the very rich and yeah. powerful and to the extent that this also can fit in with uh, you know Paul's backstory and mm-hmm. maybe even Frank's backstory, uh, I think is is super interesting. It is, yeah. What's the other? I possi- mean, I suppose I suppose there is another possibility, which is like a rival company who wants to get this contract because uh, we know that Casper was on his way to finalize this deal at the time. Yes, uh, I mean not exactly the time he was murdered. We know he hasn't been to work in a couple days. Um, so they preemptively might have scooped him up and killed him, thereby disrupting that deal and f- at least buying themselves time, if not completely turning the tide toward um, toward giving this contract to Vince Vaughn and his allies. Yeah. Uh, so that's another possibility. I, I kind of like where you were headed with the idea of vigilante justice, though. The other mystery is what Annie discovers when she serves a foreclosure notice to some, it looks like, immigrant family. Yeah, yeah. Um, And she mentions, like, I can't believe the cops are busy serving poor people eviction notices, but you can't have time to look after my little sister, Vera, yeah. who's been missing for six to eight weeks, possibly longer. Last place she works is the Polypanesian Pineapple Institute. <laughs> and... Uh-huh. That is very much shades of like missing girls and a big conspiracy and police involvement. And to the extent that Annie's uh, 
father is involved and the fact that he kind of takes great pains like oh i'm not really involved in pineapples and and that anymore i only <laughs> i only give a, a few it's anticipate them for anybody who <laughs> is shouting at their they're listening to right, exp- Look, moment. if you're expecting I'm not, I'm me not. to nail that landing with this tongue, it's not ever going to happen. I understand. It's going to be Bezerides and <laughs> Polynesian Pineapple Institute from hell to breakfast. Strap in. It's the cost of admission. <laughs> but no, I think – and the fact that that doesn't really go anywhere, I mean that's got to be related. Are you, are you casting some doubt on the, the, the nature of this guy? Of Annie's father? Uh, yeah. Do you think he's mixed up in it? I mean, I think we're supposed to suspect it. You know, anytime okay. like a, a powerful per- – I mean, this woman worked at this institute and he's like, ah, you know, I'm not barely even involved. And oh, maybe I recognize her, but probably not. And yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like this is kind of sh- shades of Marty's father-in-law from season one. But Annie didn't seem that concerned with getting that info, though. During that conversation, like but, she didn't press the issue at all, right? She's like, talk to your sister, or t- I mean, daughter, talk to my sister. Yeah, but like, it's like, I would, I think I would sit up and pay more attention last season if Marty's daughter had actually gone missing uh-huh. and she had gone missing at the country club that her father, that Marty's father in law also worked at. Sure. So I'm going to be definitely like, <laughs> these two's plot lines have to converge somewhere. So what is the death of this city, this, this missing? Uh, city manager have to do with the missing little sister of this uh, yeah. poor immigrant family. And there's one I other interesting know. fact about that that missing sister, isn't there? There's a popular theory that uh, was mentioned on our forums and has also been on Reddit that uh, the crackhead that Colin Farrell uh, shushes when he puts a ski mask on, yeah. the creepy scene from the trailer, is the same person as the little sister that's missing. And it's hard okay. to tell because I think there's some facial differences. Um, but if you look at them side by side, which, by the way, I will have that image linked in our show notes, there is enough similarity that I can't immediately you know, dismiss it. Yeah. To, honestly, to me, it looked really similar. And I thought that her, one of the noses were wider, but then that mm. could be just the shadowing. Yeah, and, the angle. And the fed, they're trying to suggest that this is a less healthy version of her, but also – she left home like three months ago and turned instantly into a crack smoker that's homeless and living in an alley. That's that's hard for me to see where that's going to be connected. I wonder if there needs to be a connection. Could it be connected um, thematically with uh, Annie's sister? Hmm. Because we know that she had some drug problems yeah. in the past. And, and there's nothing – you're right. There's nothing – now that you got four characters, they could all have different stories that they pursue to a conclusion that maybe thematically ties together but doesn't necessarily yeah. even have to involve the same case. Potentially, yeah. So, yeah, I guess that's an interesting thought. I mean, it just seems inherently less interesting to me than this uh, railroad deal, this rail deal. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about the – Annie's penchant for arming herself with just an impressive amount of knives. She's got knives oh, in yeah. belt buckle. She's got knives in, you know, she's just bristling with weaponry. Obviously, a uh, self-defense measure. I mean, that's far more of a self-defense measure than most cops go to, right? Yeah. Most cops carry the gun, the taser, that's about it. Uh I've I've got to imagine there's something in her past that made her. And her apartment is kind of like weapons everywhere. Sure, she's got like a bunch of Japanese uh, books on like swords yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, it, it's 
there's something in her past that we don't know about yet. Yeah. That is going that we're going to uncover, I would imagine, that will kind of lead us down that road. And, and a surfboard. Why. Maybe that'll be significant to the plot. Too. A, a surfboard, a surfboard okay. in her living room as well. I mean, isn't doesn't everyone in L.A. have a surfboard? That's what mm, I assume. Yeah. Um, <laughs> California Dream and, and all. What? So the other thing I want to talk about is her father. Uh, it struck me as a sour note and a lot of other people as well that he references Athena being the goddess of love, which yeah, is, yeah. of course, bullshit. Sure, Aphrodite. If you if you played <laughs> God of War or even have a passing familiarity to Greek mythology, you know that she's actually the, the goddess of war and uh, wisdom and uh, a lot of things that have nothing to do with, with uh, the love. Now, after the third time I watched it, I think that they're suggesting that his, her father's making a bemused, ironic... Hmm statement there because he says athena goddess of love and then he kind of like scoffs or shakes his head like what are you going to do like you know i named her athena okay because i you know for this reason and now she's being this uh, and i i makes sense that makes a hell of a lot more sense than it it's a mistake yeah because i can't imagine if that it's being a, a mistake if it's in a writing mistake, it's got to be significant to the plot mistake and i'm like yeah. what in the hell could that be yeah and also I feel like Annie would call bullshit on it. But if it's mm-hmm. all understood that this is kind of like a wry observation uh, about the incongruity of her name and her activities, then I yeah. guess it makes sense. Mm-hmm. A couple other just miscellaneous points I wanted to make uh, was the fact that did you notice that the waitress that works in Frank's bar, his little dive bar, is got like some fairly significant facial scarring? Yeah. Is this another kind of suggestion of endemic violence against women? Is this a suggest that Frank might be involved somehow in the disappearance of this other woman? Or is this... Oh, I don't know about the disappearance. I Maybe in the facial scarring in particular. Okay. Um, the other thing I want to talk about is the nature of the wounds on Casper. Uh, just hmm. just say, you know, we're going to talk a little bit in the psychosphere about the missing eyes and the acid burns, but they also talk about a pelvic wound yeah, that he bled out. One. I, to me, that suggested that he has been unsullied. Uh, we just watched Django Unchained yeah. the other day, so it uh-huh. definitely did to me, too. Yeah. Uh, so Especially when I, they I talk about so. how fast you bleed out if yeah. you, just, you just, just have that thing severed off. Mm-hmm. And um, they say, you know, he didn't bleed out here and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and it's fact that there's a lot of overtly sexual things about this Casper character, almost to a farcical state. <laughs> like that's one thing I was watching is like, this guy is a prominent city official and his entire house, not just like some hidden basements, not some red room. He keeps off in the West wing. Mm-hmm. His whole b- house is set up like a museum to sexual curiosity. Yeah. He invites the mayor over for dinner and his wife and, you know, just strolls him right through the the living room. But there's also nothing like sinister about it. Like there's nothing no. sadistic or like whips and chains. No. It's all just like hedonist. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like it doesn't feel like you know cutting someone's dick and balls off or mutilating their sexual organs suggests some kind of rage about what they're doing to people with those organs. But this guy seems like maybe he's just having a good time. Although maybe it's also thematic with Annie's discomfort with sexuality. Yeah, and maybe it goes darker than we saw yeah. in, in that particular scene. Um, you know, if a man's living room looks like that, what does his basement look like? Oh, well, 
deal. You know, okay. <laughs> I mean, we don't see that yet. <laughs> Maybe but... he does have uh, have a, a wing that's a more extreme. You, that's just you the gotta cover. wonder. You gotta wonder. <laughs> All right, um, but no, I. It's interesting because I thought that the final song. Uh, for the credits was interesting because it talks about California is a brand new game, hmm. which suggests that Pizzolatto wants us to intentionally remember that this is not season one. Uh-huh. But he also does a lot of weird things that make us consciously think about season one, like the way he staged uh, Ray's interview with his lawyer where he's trying to get more time with the son instantly thought brought me back to the interrogation room with Woody and Rust. Yeah. And that, instantly that format was abandoned and then there's the way they stage the scene of annie and her partner elvis is and 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 you know very reminiscent of the rust and marty's you Mm -hmm. know going around driving around shots so why are you making so many allusions to the first season if you want us to consider this as a separate product i don't know that those allusions also are flattering to the season yeah that's interesting because we know it's not the same director um, right it is the same writer so i feel like a lot of the stuff that comes out in the writing is just the natural reflection of nick pizzolato as a human being yeah um but yeah you're right the direction like why these very specific shots why they're call outs like one, it, like yeah. it's i'm not sure those kind of things are interesting in breaking bad because they're supposed to be all of a piece right oh yeah and yeah. and you know they they mean something whereas this Unless he's going to pull a Ryan Murphy and three seasons from now somehow tie all this stuff together into one overall consistent narrative anthology, Hmm. which is interesting because none of these timelines overlap. In fact, this whole season takes place in the future. Yeah, you know, the October 2015, which Uh I did not get like um, until I actually saw the dates in the newspapers. I assumed just looking at uh, um, uh, Ray's get up that this was like, you know, late 80s, early 90s kind of deal. Yeah, but I mean, then you look at his car, right? His car, he's got a modern, very modern. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But there is some flashback stuff in here, too. Sure. Like to the time when Ray was actually. You know, a cop cop, Yeah, it seems. And this may be the first moment where he gets into the underworld, mm-hmm. where, where um, Vince Vaughn is giving this him some info on the guy. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it jumps around in time a little bit. But you're right. They're not really concurrent with season one. So, yeah, if you're going to tie those together, I don't know how. So, yeah, that's the thing. Like, I don't, it came off as less as a fun Easter egg and more of like, hey, you remember what you liked about the first season? You ain't getting in this. <laughs> like, I don't know. That's the, the way to, to take that. Yeah, I don't know. We we got a long way to go on this thing, so yep. I'm not making any prejudgments here. All right, a couple pieces of feedback. One theory from Michael P. I'm thinking neither Ray nor the guy Vince Vaughn said raped Ray's wife is the father. Neither of them look like the ginger son. However, Vince Vaughn's assistant is his consigliere, his lawyer, mm. his whatever. Maybe the, uh, the consigliere is the rapist, and they just gave Ray the name of a guy who Frank wanted killed. Uh, he says he admits freely to using Westeros genetics here because, you know, we don't know the yeah, mother. Yeah. The mother could have red hair. Also, it's possible for two people, dark hair, to carry the recessive gene. It's and possible. if you do the Punnett squares, mm-hmm. you can have a redhead pop out after generations of, of dark hair. Yeah. Uh, I got to imagine in the real world, even, that always leaves you scratching your head, right? <laughs> like, right. Uh, 
I have brown hair. My wife has brown hair. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can't, like I said, some genetic analysis will get down to the bottom of yes, it. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, but no, I thought that was interesting. Uh, Especially since the interactions between Ray and Frank in the beginning were very weird. Like... You could say this as Frank is like, oh, I'm a criminal and I'm doing something kind of outside our code. But this is kind of like a this is a manly thing that I feel like I have to do as a man until I get cufflinks put on me and I'll no longer be a man. Like that you can see it as that way, but you can also just see him as yeah. like kind of like nervous and fidgety about whether this is going to work. So so it could be Simeon covering up for his his right hand man there. Like, oh, see, I know what you did. Yeah. You shouldn't have done that. We need this guy. Or, now we're gonna have to give or somebody no, else. we wanted to do this to send the message to Saw. I mean, it could be even darker than that, that this was intended to fuck him over, mess him up psychologically, and then turn him to the dark side. Okay. Because that also would be right. that would also would really make Vince's words darker. Like, you know, there's some things are beyond the pale. You just yeah, some things are business and but this isn't business. Oh, if yeah. it turns out yeah. that this was just business, mm-hmm. I Well, pity. I imagine some aspect of that interaction is just business. Whether, yeah, yeah, whether yeah, it be yeah. telling him that this other guy yeah. did this thing. Frank or... doesn't have a heart of gold. Come on. No, fuck no. <laughs> there's some there is some profit, and we can see the pro- he's already yeah. profited. He's had, you know, 10, 12 years of, of Ray being his zombie police enforcer. Yeah, so we know something is up there. I think that's a good as good a guess as any at the moment. Yeah. Uh Tom, our old pal Tom in West Virginia. Uh he says, I'm no prude, but the way Rachel McAdams' character, Annie, was introduced, was that really necessary? We meet a new female lead, and the context of this is True Detective had a quote-unquote female problem last year. Sure. But he says, uh, we meet this new female lead in a scene revolving around some sort of mysterious sex act surprise. Was the happy little accident that happened between she and her male friend? Uh, or what was it? Did they use their naughty parts differently than I normally use mine? Was there a device or an aid? Weapons, food, exotic eastern positions, audiovisual equipment, a blowtorch? What the hell and why? Whatever it was, did it make her more interesting? I guess this is just me being a liberal hippie, college-educated child of the 60s talking, but I want better female characters. She could be a female representation of so many things. Good, evil, bumbling, spiritual, skeptical, inept, sick, strong, fit, weak, profound, damaged, etc., what did we get? She practices some sort of hardcore sexual activity that surprised her new lover. I think leaving it at that is okay. You know, I don't know. Th- I don't know that I need to be told what the specific act was. I know the gist of it. Yeah, I, I didn't have that reaction, and I tend to, you know, be. I, I, I feel like I'm fairly sensitive to that kind of stereotyping, um, but. I could see where he's going because she has got this very almost masculine persona that she puts on as a police officer, literally mm-hmm. armor, armoring herself with layer of weapon layers of weapons and body armor and being kind of emotionally closed off and, and not willing to openly talk about sex or to judge people that have, uh, you know, quote unquote, healthier view of sexuality. And then you, you sidle her with this as her introduction. I, I don't know. I don't agree, but I can see where you're coming from, Tom. Okay. Liz G has a couple questions for us. Why is Ray trying to be a dad for a kid who he knows is not his? Does he want a child that much? In my opinion, he's got to know. He is at some point consciously telling himself this is 
my kid. This is my kid. He's looking in the mirror. He's telling himself that over and over again to try and make himself believe it. Even yeah. though I don't, I don't buy that he actually believes that if you get down to the root of it. And if you're the type of guy that has to avenge the rape of your wife yeah. with physical violence, um, and I can certainly understand that impulse. If if you see that almost as an affront to your own masculinity, which I do think that my interpretation of race says that is, then any the, the fact that you are raising your the your wife's rapist son is something that you can't even consider. And I feel like yeah, that they yeah. were playing with that idea with uh, Annie's crazy hippie dads talk about uh, holding two mutually contradictive ideas in your mind at once mm-hmm. that like this, I'm raising my, uh, I'm, I'm probably raising my, that my wife's rapist son, but I can't be because if I was doing that, I wouldn't be a real man or I'd be vulnerable in some way that I can't deal with. Hmm. Okay. So it can't be, but then again, this can't be my son. It's like, I, I feel like that either they're portraying this, this character as a rubber band. that's about to snap. Oh, and, yeah. and and what's scary is he has not snapped yet. Beating a man <laughs> uh, uh, with with brass knuckles in front of his son, who again his son's a little shit. And I'm not saying that I didn't enjoy that on some level, mm-hmm. a bully getting his comeuppance. But that's way the fuck over the top. Way the fuck over the top. Yeah, um, I'm with you. But but yeah, he hasn't snapped yet. That was just that's just Ray being Ray. Yeah, when it's... he finally has to confront the reality here. Or he finds out there's some chicanery with Frank involved or something. It's going to be, mm-hmm. it's going to be disturbing and epic in like a biblical sense. I think. I think you're right. I can see that. You, she says, uh, "Did you see that Matthew and Woody both have executive producer credits? Are they involved? Or is it just a credit?" I did see that. I don't know their involvement. I know that Matthew McConaughey was instrumental to getting the production greenlit and off the ground last season. Um, I also know that executive producer credit can mean next to nothing. Like, you know, in Fargo, the Coen brothers get executive producer credit for essentially saying, we're not going to cause a stink for you to adapt Fargo for the small screen. Or Fukunaga's executive producer on this one. Yes. Yes, which is is interesting. So there could be... Uh I mean, this could just be all contractual or back scratching or reward for past performance or whatever. Um, I don't know. I, I I don't think they were involved at all creatively. Yeah, I'm with you. Because I did a lot of research, and I think if they were, uh, that would have been that would have been mentioned by now. Yeah, that would be a highlight of the series. If, if they know? were on the set giving pointers to the new generation. That that would have been covered. And it, it, I don't think it's happening. This episode of The World We Deserve is brought to you by SS Design, where you can find a website at sunshowercoffee.com slash ssdesign. And it's an interesting story how this came to us, because uh, last season on Game of Thrones, or this season on Game of Thrones, we ran some Squarespace ads. Uh, and our uh, a fellow Bald Move listener, Kate, emailed us and said, hey, I do Squarespace consulting and offer a lot of services uh, to people that are that are struggling with uh, Squarespace to, to help them out with some of the technical whoa, whoa. challenges. Struggling with Squarespace. I thought we did a whole ad, a couple of them, as a matter of fact, on how easy Squarespace was. Well, you know, Jim, you got to be careful, like Nick Pizzolatto said, about the stories that you tell yourself and the stories you allow yourself to believe. Because okay, we why? straight up lot. No. Uh, so that's my that was my first thought, too. I'm like, what the hell? So we uh, talked to Kate uh, on the phone and she explained that, yes, while some of the mechanics of publishing the website are easy, 
do you know how to make a compelling logo? Do you uh, know how to generate advertising copy? Are you do you know how to once you get a nice site out there attract people to it with search engine optimization? Gotcha. Okay. Are you an expert at integrating e-commerce functionality with your website? As a matter of fact, I know most of those things, but I bet most people don't. But your your yeah. but your trade, sure, <laughs> yeah, your day job. I was doing it for a long time. Was was a website? Uh, and let me tell you, that knowledge does not come easily uh, or cheap. No. Uh, in fact, Squarespace themselves has a whole army of consultants that are willing to help you out from anywhere between $35 and $200 an hour with the minimum hour requirements. Uh, Kate is willing for uh, – if you identify yourself as a bald new fan when you reach out to her, she's willing to uh, dispense with all that and, and just do hour by hour. There's no minimum hourly commitments or contracts. Yeah. Uh, she charges $20 an hour for her consulting. She'll help you with all the things we talked to you uh, about, including importing your domain if you've already got one or helping you get a new one. Uh, she keeps you updated over Skype or, or by telephone call if you prefer. The other big difference between her and a lot of the other Squarespace consultants is that she puts an emphasis on training uh, where the other people will just do what you need done. And then if you need any updates or any changes, you got to come back and keep paying. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kate intends to put the hammer in your hand and teach you how to swing it. So it's the whole teach a man or woman how to fish. They can they can fish forever. Yeah, you teach a, a man exactly or woman how to square square space. They can they can keep on square spacing. <laughs> uh huh. Taking Again. those spaces were previously round, making ham corners, and now they're <laughs> squared. Uh, but it's it's a cool story, and there's uh, a lot of interesting. Like she was a former Chicago based attorney, mm-hmm. uh, primarily practicing in sunroof law, uh, turned Kona coffee for- farmer. Uh, but there's there's a growing season. Uh, where you're just kind of waiting for the beans to come in, and there's a harvesting selling season where you're shipping them out the door. During the summers is the growing season, and she does this kind of uh, 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 on the side. Yeah. And uh, I think there's a lot of interesting synergy because our Squarespace promotion is still active. If you go to squarespace.com and uh, check out uh, and use the GOT code, mm-hmm. you get the discount there, and then you can reach out uh, to our friend Kate, fellow listener Kate, for some of that uh, consulting expertise, yeah, for twenty bucks cool. an hour, uh, no minimums. It's a pretty pretty killer deal. I think so. So again, if you'd like to check out her previous work that she's done, uh, both for herself and for her other satisfied clients, you can go to sunshowercoffee.com/ssdesign and check it out. And you can be supporting both Bald Move and the general Bald Move family ecosystem. All right, Jim, are you are are you ready to whiff the psychosphere? Smells like the LA River. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Smells like air pollution. Mm, smog. I, I first want to give a defense of the psychosphere because I got a All lot right. of a lot of people uh on the forums and also some people emailing saying, I learned my lesson from season one. If if ninety percent of this shit doesn't pan out, then I'm not gonna pay any attention to it. Um and and why should I? And I've got three rebuttals for you. Okay. Number one, it's fun. It is. It's a ton of fun. It is fun to go on Reddit on Monday morning and go onto our forums and open up the mailbag and seeing all the crazy shit that people are pulling out. Uh-huh. And and also some of it like gets like to funny. Like there, there's like the, I, there's always a, a thread where someone just goes a little too far. 
and starts making like honest to God crazy person connections. Like I meet, I think they have in their home a big corkboard wall mm-hmm. with pictures of Vince Fun and uh, and Rachel McAdams and a bunch and of redheads, red and, yarn yeah. going between them, and uh, you know it's it's, it's Carcosa's spray painted in their hat. But to a certain extent, it's a lot of fun. And also, I'm gonna flip it on the head. If 90% of it turned out to be unintentional or coincidence or, you know, just nonsense, that still means that 10% was interesting or insightful or predictive. That's true. So you are throwing out the baby with the bathwater if you if you do not sniff the psychosphere at all. And C, if you buy into the critique that season two is at least in small part uh, a, a reaction that Pizzolatto had to criticism of season one. That's why we've got a female character. That's why we've got multiple characters with multiple viewpoints rather than the two singular focus. Then you could easily say that making the psychosphere stuff more meaningful could have been one of his mission statements. Mm-hmm. Like I, I've got people expecting this going to be nothing, so I'm going to layer this a lot more subtly and make it more meaningful at the end. Okay, I and, like that. And even if that's not true, you still got the ten percent rule, and you still got the thing. That I think it's fun. I do too. Yeah, I've, I've thought this kind of stuff is fun since Lost. Yeah. So. I dig it. Uh, so the first psychosphere thing that we didn't really talk about, I guess we did, the, the fact that this is dated in the future. Yeah. It's it's dated around Halloween. It's October 27, 2015 is when we first pick up the narrative. Halloween's kind of cool. It's a spooky holiday. Mm-hmm. It's set in the future. Why? Why would you set it in the near future rather than the past like if you wanted to set it in halloween do it 2014 what statement are they trying to make if any by setting this into the future i don't feel like there was any statement there do you have any guesses because i like i don't think it means anything i i've never i've never i've never seen something in a non-sci-fi context where they set stuff into the near future like the the real near future, like yeah. you know, even Back to the Future did like thirty years into the future. So it's like I don't I don't know. Did he think maybe the HBO was going to push this back to the fall so it'd feel like more immediate? Because I I think that is cool when something is set like today. I yeah. think that always gives it a little bit of j- a little bit of jazz to to the vibe. Mm. Um, but I feel like no Halloween is more thematic to the masks and just the spookiness of it and all that than it was an intended air date. Yeah, I mean maybe that's the thing they want to depict Halloween on screen at some point. Yeah, so you got to be kind of close because the timeline of the show doesn't span very long. Maybe. So one of the interesting parts of uh, Casper's house or his apartment or his flat or whatever you call it, um, you know, you got all the dildos and the the weird sex stuff, which we're going to talk a little bit here in a minute. But what really jumped out at me is the jeweled skeleton. Yeah. And there's a lot of people had theories on this. There is uh, someone who posted an image gallery that contains a bunch. I guess this is a thing where in medieval times, people would bust into tombs and steal ancient bones and then encrust them with jewels and decorate them in these costumes and posit that they are actually Christian martyrs. Okay. And then they'd be venerated as these like, you know, reliquaries and saints mm. and people would pray to them and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And there's this whole article that I'm going to list. I'm going to put this image gallery of, of different works of that. And also there's a Smithsonian uh, magazine uh, online article about these uh, uh, Catholic martyrs 
and, <laughs> and the practice of doing that. But then I found just day um, the concept of the Santa Muerte, which is one of those qu- kind of like Day of the Dead. It's quasi-Catholic, quasi-Meso-American blending of those two cultures, and it's literally a female representation of a of death that's been sainted. Sure. And the popular conception of that looks a lot more like this skeleton than actually these these Catholic uh, martyr stuff does too. Huh, okay. Um you know, I don't know what they're going with that except for this is part of like Hispanic culture and it's also kind of ties into a little bit of that uh, Santeria voodoo type stuff that you found on the bayou. Um, it's kind of okay. like something that the Catholic Church doesn't with officially recognizes Latin and discourages. It's it's a little bit of a cult. Mm-hmm. Um, the, so I I thought that's interesting, and I don't know where it's going. I don't have any more broader analysis than it looks like it's a better match. And I'll, I'll also you know I'll link to the Wikipedia article on Santa Muerte too. Um, one of the bizarre things is there's this um, image of a girl of a of a, a diminutive woman floating in what looks like milk. In this guy's apartment, yeah, yeah. and and I thought she looked real, okay. and I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's a pixie, my god. Yeah, what like I and in the way that Colin Farrell introduced it, he's like, are you seeing this? Almost like yeah, yeah. Russ's ghost uh, musings, but clearly dipshit, ba- bag of shit Dixon also yeah. sees it. So, uh, but this is a, this is a piece of artwork that uh, Peter Sarkeesian made. It's called Whitewater, and it was made in 1999. You can see a video of it on the, the Vimeo service. I'll link that. But apparently it is a bowl and there's like uh, there's like a big version that's been in museums and stuff, but there's also scaled down versions that maybe you can buy. But it's essentially a bowl filled of this opaque acrylic that okay. then on top they project onto the surface this image of the woman swimming in milk. That what that's what makes it look extremely realistic. Because I'm like, right. that's not like some kind of fucking latex eight inch real doll. <laughs> that's that's really weird. But it looks yeah. Extremely convincing if you look see it on video. So I'm gonna link that. Um, it's I don't think it's really psychosphere. It's just kind of cool. Mm-hmm. All right, now we're ready to do some some serious huffing here. Okay, the good. theme of blindness. Okay, Paul turning off his headlights on his bike and riding blind directly led him to discovery of the body of Casper who had been blinded. Okay. The medical scene investigator mentioned that the injuries to Casper's eyes looked like they may have been caused by an acid or some type of chemical. Paul's body is also covered in burns, which we don't know what caused them, but potentially, I mean, they could be fire, but they could be caused by some kind of acid or chemical, similar to the type that's used on on Casper, potentially. Okay, we're grasping here. Are we going to bring it around? Are we going to bring it all together at the end? <laughs> well, the other tie between this guy and, and Paul is that the he mentions the wound to the pelvic region, which implies yeah. a geni- geni- genital mutilation. Paul himself is having problems with his genitals functioning properly. Mm-hmm. You also throw in Andy. This is, this is my own little spin I'm going to put on the psychosphere, is that Annie's dad mentions that nonsense about seeing the world with the eyes of God. Okay. Okay. Uh, what does it all mean? <laughs> I don't know, but here I'm, I'm not finished because there's also a lot of stuff. Um, her, her name Antigone. Mm-hmm. So this is the daughter of Opetus. Uh, and Opetus is o- a figure in Greek. O- Opetus or Oedipus? Oedipus. I'm sorry. Okay. Again, I, this is Penelope. I know. I know. <laughs> Pineapple. It's Institute. your bane. Oedipus. I, I get it. <laughs> uh, 
So this is the story about a, a, a man born of a king and a queen uh, who is sent away from his family at a young age to avoid fulfilling the prophecy that he's going to end up killing his father and marrying his mother. And, of course, he becomes a grown-ass man, and he winds up killing his father, not knowing it's his father, and marrying his mother and fathering children off his mother. When he finds out he's, he, that, that this truth that has been in front of his face that the gods have been trying to reveal to him is different than his, his self-image of what happens, his reaction is he gouges out both of his eyes. Okay. What what is what are you trying to say? This here? all goes back into the theme of blindness. Okay, I, I, I'm still not. This is not a well developed theory, for, but it's, yes, it's yes. something that, that ties them all together. Now, it's interesting that there are so many connections between the two characters. I I agree there. Yes, yes. Now Antigone, his daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, her name literally means worthy of her parents. Or coming from like like the sense of she's formed she she is in, in the image of her parents, okay, which is kind of on the nose for what her and her father's conversation because he's mm-hmm. he's he's saying that you are the way you live your life is a rejection of everything that I find of value, yeah, which I think is interesting. But she's also Antigone is part of this um, this this cycle of three Greek plays that they call the Theban plays. Um, but her deal is uh, one of her brothers got killed in a war and he's, he's seen as a traitor to his country. And there's a law that the King passes that forbids even mourning for him. It's punishable by death. She loves her brother and she wants to see him buried with honors. So she defies the law to make sure that she gets the, the, the respect he gets the respect that he deserves in death. It's a lot more complicated that because her daughter, her, her, you know, her brother is also her uncle, and he's murdered by her other brother and a vi- you know there's a lot of other stuff going on here but um as punishment she's entombed alive in an underground chamber but the king that passed that sentence recants his decision but when they open up the tomb she turns out she's hung herself rather than face the slow death of being buried alive okay. the other thing is she cites as her evidence of you know disregarding the king's laws that the law of the gods have supremacy over the law of men um, and the gods want to honor people who die valorous in combat. Does that have anything to do with the statement? I mean, what is this telling her about her, us about her fate, if anything? Uh, I, I don't, I don't buy that it necessarily says anything yet. Could it be that like, she's going to be I put in a situation draw. where she has to choose between what her heart tells her to do and what the law tells her to do? Is this going to foreshadow her reaction? Because the, I mean, I guess you know it depends on how literally you want to take all of these illusions. Clearly, right? one of the chief tensions in this series is going to be Ray, who is desperately trying to cover up official misconduct and misdeeds. Yeah, with Annie, who is trying to heroically uncover this misdeed and misconduct, and Taylor, yeah. who's caught in the middle of, and has an IA investigation on him. Right? Like, yes, you got to imagine that that's going to factor in somewhere too. I think it's, it's interesting that, uh, you know, I don't know if it's literally she's going to be buried alive or thing. anything like yeah. that, but I think thematically it's very interesting. And the fact that it ties her together with Taylor, with his blindness and the sexual dysfunction, I don't I mean, know. Is she not going to be able to get out from under all of this, uh, all the problems she has and she's going to kill herself? I mean, yeah, I, I feel like, you know, it depends on how literal you want to go. Let's talk about the books of the dead because this is uh, entitled, okay. of course, the Western Book of the Dead, which is an actual yeah. fucking book slash tract slash pamphlet. A couple of them, 
Um, so you know more about this than I do, so t- t- tell, tell me about it. Yeah, I did a little reading on the uh, Western Book of the Dead. There are two versions of it. Um, first of all, I'm going to talk one, about the one I think is less significant. There's one written um, by a guy named Alfred Schmielewski, I guess, who is this yogi and self-proclaimed psychic um, from the 70s, the 60s and 70s and stuff. And he was basically saying all of these prophecies he you know as psychics do he claimed to have this 85 percent hit rate and all this stuff and he just made a whole bunch of predictions that did not come true and eventually he was murdered by someone um because he had predicted that he would live forever somebody killed him both proving he's not a psychic and he's not going to live forever mm-hmm. um but he you know in this book he talks about c- kind of a lot of the usual yogi bullshit as i would call it mm-hmm. um which is like man is not necessarily just his body he has like a presence outside of it he can leave the body and you know if he were around today to say it i would imagine he would say something along the lines of like um a spock sort of thing right where you can your your physical form may die but as long as you prepare yourself mentally you can leave it and that existence is not all there is okay um he also has a lot of weird shit in there about like it's it harkens back to sort of nazi era stuff um and their outlook on life like one of the things he says is that 50 percent of the population is completely unequipped to to amount to anything significant Uh um basically that they are a subspecies of human that that uh i mean it's interesting here because he calls them um naked apes not humans huh and that kind of connects in with the Simeon idea, you know, the mm. the the idea that maybe Simeon himself is is trying to be more legit and trying to be something more than this underworld kind of criminal, interesting subhuman sort of guy. It also leads to scary places where people get shoved into ovens. Oh no, but it's yeah. a horrible <laughs> it's a horrible philosophy. I yeah, don't yeah, like yeah. anything about it, yeah. or most of the philosophy in these shows, but. Uh, I, I think there's a definite tie in there. Um, and he, he talks about how, like, the Italian Renaissance is, like, the the high point of culture and life and civility and all this stuff because you had those people who were part of the other 50%, part of mm. the, the few people who were human, who were doing things that aspired to more grand uh, aspirations. And now than, look at them. The Greeks and Italians bankrupt in the European Union. It's just a decline of civilization. They let too many of the simians in. That That's interesting because then we go over to the other Book of the Dead, which is attributed to no one. It's a, like there it's is an no author, author. Necessarily. It's, um, like a, it's like a chick tract. Yeah, it's a, it's a short four-page pamphlet that um, kind of outlines the the timeline of life. And it goes from like the beginning of the universe when there was no life to the formation of organic yeah. Uh, mass yeah, and then into consciousness and then kind of the development of society and love and the tale that they tell about, um, you know, purpose and existence and God yeah. and, and the creation of God in the, in the minds of people. And then yeah. the loss of that um, once they get to reason, they say, let's apply reason to our existence mm-hmm. um we understand that there is no point to it all we are mm-hmm. all just meaningless mass which is this is right out of the russ cole playbook absolutely absolutely uh-huh. so then you go beyond that and you start saying well if there is no reason then we can do whatever we want and society starts collapsing families start falling apart uh typical you know shit that religious people will spout about the downfall of civilization because the loss of god and morality and all that stuff right um which Personally, I don't buy into. I don't think you have to be religious or believe in a god to be moral, but 
Well, no. And that's, I mean, it does feel like a vaguely Judeo-Christian reducto absurdum argument against evolution, believing in evolution and... and uh, but that's, that's the interesting thing. Like this book, this book of the dead, the Western book of the dead, um, defines essentially God as love. Like they, they, what they define love as is a state of happiness and satisfaction with the existence that you have. Okay. And then people somewhere along the line with a desire to have meaning to their lives and not necessarily just a uh a satisfaction with where you are start creating a god and start telling rumors about um there's a there's a larger purpose for us. Yeah. You know, and it and it snowballs and it becomes God. Okay. Which they they use the term God and love, in my opinion, interchangeably. All right. In this book. Um Well, God is love. So yeah, it, it's like I, I don't feel like you have to go beyond that place where You've come to this balanced, happy point, but they choose to as they, a refutation. Of, they choose to, and and it seems like the book is saying that that is the natural state of humanity is to continue to search. Yeah, you know, you find this place, but to, it's not enough, and you keep going to and, a point where it's futile, futile and self-destructive. Now, I will say, if you're interested, you can actually find this online as a PDF. I'm not going to yeah. link to it because I'm not sure the copyright. It was written in 1970, and like you can get original copies at places for hundreds and even thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it's probably going to get even more expensive if this, this season's a, a hit. So, But if you but have any kind of cursory Google foo, you'll be able to find the PDF that has this four pages of yeah, stuff. Yeah, but I think the interesting thing is how it connects with the characters that were shown in this episode. All right. You know, I mean, it's the name of the episode. You've got to imagine that this this downfall of family, this downfall of mm-hmm. morals and sex being wrapped up in that and and not not doing things for love but for sex and it's it's all wrapped up in these characters and you yeah. can see it on display here and I think that's what they're trying to say with the title is this is the beginning of the end for humanity. So there's a lot of other books of the dead. There's the Egyptian book of the dead yeah. which is a real life uh, a series of scrolls <laughs> that talk about practices, funerary practices. It's like an instruction manual. Quasi-magical manuals. It's like, you know, grimoire uh, that uh, Forum Dinsen Jamie T made some connections with uh, between the occasionally a baboon-headed, occasionally ibis-headed uh, Toth uh, god. And in his ibis form, he, when he, wa- he, he strongly resembles a man wearing a black crow's mask. You yeah. know, ibis is not a crow. But hmm. it's it, it's a black feathered head with a with a long beak, and I've that seen looks one of those. <laughs> looks a lot like the man wearing the black the black crow's mask. And 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 his divine role, according to ancient Egyptians, was associated with the arbitration of godly disputes, um, which I thought had an interesting connection between viewing the world with God's eyes and how contradictory that is. That it's hmm. simultaneously meaningless, and also that God wouldn't create a meaningless world. Um, the art of magic, the system of writing, development of science, and judgment of the dead, which also ties into the Western Book of the Dead philosophy, too. Okay. The development of science and, and writing and, and reason. Um, yeah. I thought that was interesting. There's also a Tibetan Book of the Dead. Uh, and the, the this book is intended a lot like the Egyptian one to guide one through the experiences of consciousness after death, uh, the interval between death and the next cycle of rebirth. Um, it also has a bunch of different uh, rituals to undertake when death is closing on or something you do to a body after it's taken place. It's very similar to this, this other Book of the Dead. Um, but from a, a, a Buddhist perspective, and I think it's interesting because when you die, 
you can be, you know, everyone knows you can be reincarnated as an animal or another human. You can go up or down the ladder of life. But they also, another possibility, I guess, is you can be reincarnated as a ghost in a ghost version of this world. And hmm. there's a, as many different types of ghosts as there are animals and humans in the real world. And one of the ghosts that they detail is this concept of a hungry ghost, which are depicted with bloated stomachs and necks too thin to pass food. So that attempting to eat is incredibly painful for these ghosts. Um, some are described in the literature as having mouths the size of a needle's eye and a stomach the size of a mountain. Uh, and this is seen as a metaphor for people trying to attempt to fulfill their self through physical desires. And okay. how that's just an illusory pursuit. They can never get enough. They're always hungry for more. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the Tibetan word for this emotional state these ghosts are in literally means yellow nose, which could be translated to meanness or lack of generosity. And a person in this state is constantly seeking to consume or even enrich themselves, but can never be satisfied. This a lot of connections here has a lot of connections to the character of Frank and even him say you don't do anything out of hunger, especially mm -hmm. eat. Yep. Uh, and the fact that he is not satisfied with what he's got, he's got to get more, and that perhaps this is his undoing, or this is going to trap him in the very cycle of circumstances that he's trying to escape from. And it also hints at perhaps a reason why Casper himself, was, which, you know, the friendly ghost, I mean, that, sure. that's not lost on me. I think, you know, it could be a hint as to what happened with him. Maybe he got too greedy. Maybe uh, this deal was one step too far for him. Sure. And they ghosted him. And then you've also got the Necronomicon, which brings us right yeah. back to, right. you know, literal book of the dead. This is a fictional one, not a real, yeah. quote unquote, real life based one. Um, and that brings us right back to Lovecraft territory, uh -huh. which is, you know, again, I don't I'm not one of the ones that's mad. And I'm not even I'm not even, as I said in the podcast for last season, I'm not even willing to completely dismiss the the idea that there is some kind of uh, tentacled. Uh, thousand-eyed goat, mini black wing type of entity going on in season one. It's just you don't have you know. There, there's also a, a, a Scooby-Doo scientific explanation for everything as well. Yeah, but no, there's lots of books of the dead that mankind has written and are still writing as recently as fifty years ago. That's relevant to the plot, and this is you know this is all just incredibly dense information presented to us in this first episode. How much of it will be relevant? How much of it will inform what we view? Who knows? Yeah. But I was blown away by how much stuff there was there on the screen that I did not get on the first or even probably second or third viewings. And you got to imagine it's not intended for everyone to get. No, I never got to hang together a show that is entertaining for people who aren't ever going to look into this stuff. Yeah. No, I mean, that's like the classic, you know, we talk about in terms of George Martin, a three step reveal where you you put breadcrumbs for the really smart people, which because of the Internet, anyone yeah. who's wanting to know can find out. Sure. Yeah. Then you have the second reveal, which is for like your more average a person of and it's not just intelligence. It's also like unless you're an expert at Tibetan funeral lore and egyptian mythology sure, and greek sure. mythology i mean i'm not saying this you is can't like know everything and and i don't know this shit i have wikipedia and reddit yeah and our forums and hundreds of people or thousands of people sending us messages so um and it's also dependent on your interest level you know yeah if you don't want if you don't care if you just want to watch a good show but but you know part of, i see, feel like a lot of the joy of watching these shows is trying to stay one step ahead of the narrative and then always you know, the, the, the winning of a war internet points for making correct predictions. Yeah. Some shows. And I feel like this is one of those shows. Yep. Yep. It's definitely in the lost and leftovers and X-Files vein. Mm -hmm. 
So, um, no, I, I, I'm kind of hopeful that maybe maybe this will be different from season one and that and instead of season one being that's like the pervasive atmosphere, that this is very subtle that will but will turn out to mean more. Okay, I would It'll like be that. more like, you know, he sees how crazy people went over the aspect of the show that doesn't seem like he was particularly interested in. Maybe he's going to run with that, or maybe he'll continue to put that in as use it for atmosphere. Like this is his version of a fog machine and a laser show at a concert. Yeah, I got to say, I didn't get the visceral kind of reaction uh, from this season that I did from season one where I felt the atmosphere. Yeah, the only you thing know? that gave me that same thrill was seeing the bird head. Okay. And I yeah. like, whoa. And also seeing the golden skeleton. I was yeah, like, that's yeah. fucking out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, no, no. There wasn't nearly but like as the main plot didn't feel as wrapped finding up a in... devil trap in a shed. Yeah. yeah none of that. None of that. Like, no spirals. Ooh, yeah. No crowns. Yeah. So I don't, we'll see where it goes. I live it full. I live it wide. Through layers of time, you can't divide. Bald Move depends on your support to create our independent podcast. Find out how you can help out and get lots of great perks such as ad-free podcasts, live video feeds, and other exclusive bonus content at club.baldmove.com. If you'd like to send in your feedback, you can do so by emailing it to truedetective at baldmove.com. You can find all of our content at baldmove.com and participate in our discussion forums. Keep up with our latest release schedules by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter. I live among you, well disguised.